story of London. My name is Saul, and this is Chapter 13, Part 2 of a two-part special, wherein I examine the four possible suspects in the murder of Londonwick. In the last part, I explored the first two, or maybe three, possible candidates. We looked at the actions of King Burgred of Mercia, and his successor, King Sherwulf II of Mercia. And I went into extraordinary detail about the suspect Halfton Whiteshirt, the Viking leader possibly related to Olaf the White of Dublin, and who over one three-year period saw himself as Lord over London, then Dublin, and then York. But now it's time to move on to our last two suspects. Remember, all I am doing is presenting you with what we can work out these men were up to at this time. The final decider as to who was responsible for the death of Londonwick, I will leave to you. Our third suspect is Guthrum. In 874, as I said last chapter, the Viking army split apart in the town of Repton after what seems to have been a possible mercenary contract to place Sjölwulf on the throne of Mercia. Halfdan and his men head north. Guthrum and his followers don't. We are fairly sure that this force basically came under the leadership of three warriors, one of whom was Guthrum, and by 877, after a bit of reorganisation in East Anglia, he launched a full-scale invasion of Alfred's Wessex. Now, according to the Anglo-Saxons, Guthrum marched all the way from Cambridge to the south coast of England with an army, and no one saw him. Me, I find that very hard to believe, and as such it cast doubt on the rest of the tale as they tell it. Supposedly Guthrum marches all the way from Cambridge to take a fortified convent in the town of Wareham. There he ends up being surrounded by Alfred's armies, and uh, that negotiation follows. Uh, Guthrum suddenly breaks out on horseback, rides through the English countryside, and then goes and takes Exeter. Look, I believe the bare-bone facts of the event took place, but not in the way the Anglo-Saxons describe it. It doesn't make any sense. Why march by land to take a convent, which is much easier taken by sea? Ultimately, as dramatic as it is, I think we should hold the very exciting Anglo-Saxon version of events at arm's length, and rather look at the practicalities of what took place to get a fuller picture of what maybe happened. The plan for the invasion seems to have been for Guthrum's force to secure a southern port first, and then be joined by the main body of his men, to land at a safe bridgehead and to go from there to lay waste to Wessex. Did Guthrum get there overland or sail there? It doesn't matter actually. What mattered is that his bridgehead was at Wareham. And that's what it was, a bridgehead. Because he was clearly about to be joined by a massive sea-based invasion. Because according to the story, a fleet 
of 120 Viking ships were sailing to reinforce Guthrum. But in a moment of extraordinary providence, a huge storm smashed them into the south coast of England. Maybe a storm. It could have been fog and they just sailed into the south coast of England. What's really interesting is where this took place. This extraordinary maritime disaster took place off the coast near Swanage, which is very close to Wareham. And I can't help but wonder if the original plan was to secure Wareham, get reinforcements and take on Alfred from there. But with the destruction of such a large fleet, Guthrum ended up moving his surviving forces to Exeter, either by land or by sea, it doesn't really matter. Now, the Anglo-Saxon version of these events is much more elaborate and involves many more dramatic moments, but while that is all exciting, it does miss the screamingly obvious. Guthrum's campaign of 877 was an utter failure, and now he does exchange hostages, agree to withdraw, and did leave the south coast, only to return as far as Mercia. And from there, he launches another attack a year later, only a year later. And hang on a moment, he had just lost 120 ships, which if we're going on the ratio of about 70 men per ship as we have done in the past, that means around 8,400 men possibly. At this point, you would be within your rights to ask, where is he getting such numbers from? I think the failed campaign of 877 is way more important than we give credit for. Even allowing for Anglo-Saxon hyperbole as to the exact numbers of ships and men killed, we can say a large body of experienced sailors and expensive dragon ships had been destroyed in the waters of the English south coast. How big an impact was this going to have? Well, Guthrum was simply never able to launch another large sea-based operation after this. He was forced to stick to land-based operations. And so he does. If he had been elected as leader, and there is no suggestion to say he wasn't, and if he had failed in his grandiose plans to invade Wessex by the sea, the pressure would have been on him to produce some kind of result. It looks like he made a desperate gambit, a Hail Mary pass. He may have failed with Plan A, so he unleashed Plan B. But to do that, he needed reinforcements. Where was he going to get them from? There wasn't an infinite number of Vikings just hanging around. And even if he didn't lose over 8,000 men off the south coast, he had clearly taken serious losses. The great heathen army itself had been fighting for over a decade at this stage, and even allowing for reinforcements in the form of the great summer army, one has to ask, how is he maintaining viable numbers? 
with Halfdan and his men conducting cleaning up operations over in Dublin and the Irish Sea, how on earth was he replacing such serious losses? The solution could well be, as Thomas Williams of the British Museum suggested, that not all the heathens in the great heathen army were technically heathen, or Scandinavian, or even of Scandinavian descent. We have to take on board, right now, the idea that part of that Viking army, possibly even a significant part of that army, could well have been natives from Mercia, East Anglia, and even Northumbria. To the West Saxons, they would have been Danes, Vikings, but their origins were as British as the men they were intending to fight. This begs the question, why would Saxons join a fight with the Vikings against their fellow Saxons? Actually, there are many reasons. I mean, they could have been runaway slaves or outlaws or exiles from Wessex. They could have also been professional warriors, the descendants of the warbands, whose purpose had always been to, well, you know, just fight. These men had been trained to fight for whomever king they swore loyalty to. Why do we insist they would have been motivated by fear of some foreigner, especially if Sjölf was all supportive of the idea? And some would see any attack being planned on a rival kingdom, not via the filter of we are all English together and must stand together. The English, after all, was this new weird term that was being created by the King of the West Saxons. Let's be honest. If you found a true patriot Mercian and said, Hey, how would you like to join us and go kick in the heads of a bunch of damn West Saxons? He isn't going to necessarily object to the idea. Especially if Guthrum and his boys had just restored a true Mercian to the throne. So keep in mind that if Guthrum returned from the debacle in 877 and said, Alright, I need men, I can't take any ships as I've lost my experienced sailors and the ship, so how would you like to join me in smashing in the face of the smug West Saxon warbands? he may well have drawn hundreds of followers, at the very least, from the local communities. Therefore, it makes a bit of sense for me that on January 7th of the year 878, 12th night, having left Reptum and the surrounding area, this new army had travelled the Foss Way, the old Roman road that drove straight into the heart of Wessex. And here they fell upon the royal estate in Chippenham, took out the army and forced Alfred to flee. They had effectively ended the power of the West Saxon nation. If you think about it, it's only taken 100 years since the first isolated pirate Viking attacks upon scattered villages in Kent to this date. Every 
Anglo-Saxon nation had basically fallen to the Scandinavians. With Halfdan ruling in the north, Guthrum seemed to be the ruler of the south, including London. But his forces were no longer as mobile as the Vikings liked. They clearly didn't have the ships they had previously used to give themselves operational depth. So what follows is one of the great creation stories of England. Alfred, forced to retreat to the Somerset marches, leads a small band of warriors against Guthrum in what appears to be an increasingly successful guerrilla campaign. The Vikings, the masters of joint land-sea operations, were now reduced to pure land fighting. Momentum swings, and eventually Alfred is able to build up a new army and to gather this force and defeated Guthrum at the Battle of Eddington. Guthrum fled with his few survivors, these were surrounded by Alfred, and here he finally negotiated a treaty to save his life. Guthrum was to convert to Christianity, and to basically become the ruler of East Anglia. And so he does. Only around now, in the aftermath of 878 and 879, Seolwulf just goes missing from the historical record, and Mercia is basically divided up between Guthrum and Alfred. The borderlands between the two? Well, to quote the first line of the treaty the two men signed, quote, First, as to the boundaries between us, they shall run up the Thames, and then up the Lee, and then along the Lee to its source, and then in a straight line to Bedford, and then up the Ouse to Watling Street. Unquote. So it appears as if London was to be on the Danish side of the border. By the way, Danish isn't the correct term, but that's what the Saxons called them. And maybe it was. Certainly London was right on the border, if not on the Danish side, but we must not fall victim to thinking that treaty should be seen as the creation of an actual border, that the Dane law, as the region to the east was later known, existed from this moment in time. It doesn't at all, but we'll come back to that. Suffice now just to end the story of Guthrum. I should add, by the way, in the last clause of that treaty between those two men, there was a special mention that the Vikings would not allow any slave from Alfred lands run off and join Guthrum's Viking warbands, which for me is further proof that not all these Vikings were actually of Scandinavian heritage. And it was such a bad problem, Alfred inserted the clause to prevent that from happening again in all future dealings with Guthrum. As part of his surrender to Alfred, Guthrum was baptised and given the Christian name Æthelstan, and he was accepted by Alfred and all as the legitimate Christian king of the ancient nation of East Anglia, a land still populated mostly by Christians and locals. He was in the club now, elevated to the highest level, a king no less. 
It wouldn't take a genius not to see he now needed to act Christian, to be Christian, pretend to be a good, upstanding Saxon ruler, and if he does, lo, he will make more money in one year of being a king than in ten years of raiding. But Alfred had become his godfather, which symbolically made Alfred his de facto father, or, more simply, the superior king. In a nutshell, while he was never called an underking of Alfred the Great, Guthrum was an underking of Alfred of Wessex, and as such, his territory nominally came under Alfred's jurisdiction. Really, that border, it just delineated the effective limits of their direct influence. And it also did something else. It killed Mercia. The line was driven through Mercia, and it simply became a spoil of war. The population didn't move or anything, but by doing this, Alfred and Guthrum Aethelstan had just ended Cholwulf's title. They both just killed Mercia. No more and no less. And this leads us to our final suspect, Alfred, Alfred the Great. He, as we have seen, won the big prize. He takes out Mercia and manages, through the unlikely victory over the Vikings, that horde of exiled, runaway slaves, warriors and chances, to not just get rid of his only rival kingdom in the south of England, but he places the Vikings in an East Anglian-shaped box. And it is now we begin to see his true genius. It wasn't in his victories, which were often caused by luck. It wasn't in his negotiations, which were intense and brilliant. But it was in his propaganda. Because it is now he begins to use the term Anglesin, as he describes himself as the lord of the English kind, the English, the Anglo-Saxons. The very concept was born here to describe Alfred styling himself as ruler of all, be you Scandinavian or Mercian, it doesn't matter. If you live here, you can have your own rulers, like the Danes in East Anglia have Guthrum. Or the Mercians had a man called Aethelred, now styled Ilderman of Mercia, or the ambiguous title of Lord of Mercia. But just as long as you recognised Alfred was in charge. It was Alfred's policy now to consolidate his rule, tighten his grip upon his new realm, in a way not seen since the Romans, and which would not be replicated until William the Conqueror nearly 200 years later, Alfred did just that, systematically, methodically, with malice and hatred to anyone who opposed him. Alfred created a new identity for the land, bearing not just Mercia, but everything that went before him. He became a uniquely English Ozymandias, and we can only gaze upon his works 
in awe and despair. And yet there remains one last thread of ambiguity. Because if in 879 and 880 Alfred was effectively the godfather of England, the new king of the English, then we must ask, what of London? And there we find this ambiguity, because for the next few years, Londonwick remained in an umbral state. Not quite what it was, not quite what it would become. Supposedly, it was under Wessex's influence, but also under Viking influence. Who ruled it? We do not know. All that we do know for sure is that in 886, Alfred turned up in the Trade Emporium and ordered it rebuilt behind the Roman walls. The population moved and Londonburg was born. And to that population, he added warriors and a new class of militant loyalists. He clearly made himself Lord of London in all ways, and indeed, it is in 886 that Alfred built the community that was to become the true City of London. And we will examine the exact details of what is going on in Londonwick during its death and the birth of Londonburg more closely in the next chapter, as yes, something that big gets its own specific separate chapter. But we end our account of this mystery by returning to its central question. Who killed Londonwick? Was it Burgred, whose indifference to the obvious geopolitical risk posed by the great heathen army meant he had allowed it to grow in power to the point where his own rule, and therefore the very future of Mercia, was hazarded into oblivion, his guilt kind of ignored as he just died south of Milan soon after. Was it Chilwolf, whose willingness to facilitate the Vikings as possible backers and mercenaries made him, as Alfred's propaganda department styled him, nothing more than a disposable puppet? Was it the fault of Halfdan, whose need to focus upon York in order to facilitate the dreams of the Viking diaspora caused what would have been, could have been, should have been a conquest focused upon the north alone, wait too long to focus upon the north. Had he not seemingly accepted a mercenary job which led his men to Repton, would Guthrum have then led forces south into Wessex? Was it the fault of Guthrum, whose ambition always seemed to outstrip his ability? whose grandiose plans, while spectacular, repeatedly failed, and at the moment of his highest glory, handed victory to Alfred of Wessex? Or was it Alfred, who, seeing his opportunity, rebranded and rebuilt the Saxon lands, fashioning them into something else, a new people, the land of the English kind, and as part of that, sacrificing London upon the altar of his vision? Or was it a combination of these men who caused the death of Londonwick and the birth of the fierce and proud 
Lundenberg. I will allow you to make that decision. And with that, well, that's the end of the comparatively short chapter 13. And thank you for bearing with me. This was an important couple of chapters, but also a frustrating pair. As I said a few chapters ago, one of the hardest things about telling the story of London is that many events that were to shape London's history took place a long way away from the city. And sometimes when the impact upon the city, it's decades after the circumstances that led to that impact have actually started. Hence why last episode I went into so much detail about Halfdan and the Irish Sea. No, right now, that doesn't impact upon London. But given much of the background to London's history over the next century was going to be ongoing wars between the kings of Wessex and the Vikings, all seeking to control York, and given that London does play a significant role in this conflict, it needed contextualization. What doesn't help is that not only are the late 870s this amazing period filled with intense stories of war and conflict, this is matched by the fact that the 880s is somewhat of a black hole. There are plenty of things happening, but exact dates are very hard to come by, and when something happened changes how we see that something. And all of this ties into the fact that as you may have picked up, the ambiguity and confusion of this era leads to some very divergent readings as to what exactly was going on. As I said last chapter, partly this is because we are talking about events 1100 years ago. But as I also said a few chapters ago, we are not only dealing with trying to reconstruct events back then, but several hundred years worth of bad history from previous generations of historians who had their own spin of events that have entered the consensus. And as I will endlessly repeat, I offer a narrative version of the history of London and do not hide the fact that I'm seeking to tell a story. While I do desperately seek to be as accurate as possible, it is worth remembering that in the very act of constructing a narrative, I, by necessity, exclude things like coincidence, and also by inclination, must negate the views of some narratives over others. As long as the listener keeps on board that I have given a broad outline here, and when it comes to things like who was ultimately responsible for Alfred moving the town, we could get lost in so much detail that we never reach a firm conclusion, which is very much in keeping with the standard historian's response, to be fair. Anyway, in the next chapter, as I said, we will focus very specifically on the events of 886 and the exact circumstances of the fall of Londonwick. It's time to bring this story right back to the residents of London and what we can work out about how their lives changed. As always, there'll be a link in the description of this episode to take you to a page on Imgur where you can find copies of the rough scripts for all the episodes so far, along with pictures, maps and other useful things. It also has a link to my Buy Me A Coffee webpage, 
And if you do feel like making a contribution towards my lifelong addiction to caffeine, then I would be incredibly grateful. So, thanks for listening. And I'll see you for chapter 14 of the story of London. The Fortress City is born.